Section twenty one of the Far Country by Winston Churchill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book three, chapter eighteen, part two. I fell into the habit of dropping in on Nancy at least twice a week on my way from the office, and I met her occasionally at other houses. I did not tell Maud of that first impulsive visit, but one evening a few weeks later, she asked me where i had been and when i told her she made no comment i came presently to the conclusion that this renewed intimacy did not trouble her which was what i wished to believe of course i had gone to nancy for a stimulation i failed to get at home and it is the more extraordinary therefore that i did not become more discontented and restless i suppose this was because i had grown to regard marriage as most of the world regarded it as something inevitable and humdrum as a kind of habit it is useless to try to shake off but life is so full of complexities and anomalies that i still had a real affection for maud and i liked her the more because she didn't expect too much of me and because she didn't complain of my friendship with nancy although i should vehemently have denied there was anything to complain of i respected maud if she was not a squaw she performed religiously the traditional squaw duties and made me comfortable and the fact that we lived separate mental existences did not trouble me because i never thought of hers or even that she had one she had the children and they seemed to suffice she never renewed her appeal for my confidence and i forgot that she had made it nevertheless i always felt a tug at my heart-strings when june came around and it was time for her and the children to go to mattapoisett for the summer when i accompanied them on the evening of their departure to the smoky noisy station and saw deposited in the sleeping car their luggage and shawls and bundles they always took the evening train to boston it was the best tom and susan were invariably there with candy and toys to see them off if susan and her children had not already gone and at such moments my heart warmed to tom and i was astonished as i clung to matthew and morton and little biddy at the affection that welled up within me saddened when i kissed maud good-bye she too was sad and always seemed to feel compunctions for deserting me i feel so selfish in leaving you all alone she would say if it weren't for the children they need the sea air but i know you don't miss me as i miss you a man doesn't i suppose please don't work so hard and promise me you'll come on and stay a long time you can if you want to we shan't starve she smiled that nice room which is yours at the southeast corner is always waiting for you and you do like the sea and seeing the sailboats in the morning i felt an emptiness when the train pulled out i did love my family after all i would go back to the deserted house and i could not bear to look in at the nursery door at the little beds with covers flung over them 
Why couldn't I appreciate these joys when I had them? One evening, as we went home in an open street car together, after such a departure, Tom blurted out, Hugh, I believe I care for your family as much as for my own. I often wonder if you realize how wonderful these children are. My boys are just plain ruffians, although I think they're pretty decent ruffians. But Matthew has a mind. He's thoughtful. And an imagination. He'll make a name for himself one day, if he's steered properly and allowed to develop naturally. Morton's more like my boys. And as for Chickabiddy, words failed him. I put my hand on his knee. I actually loved him again as I had loved and yearned for him as a child. He was so human, so dependable. And why couldn't this feeling last? He disapproved, foolishly, I thought, of my professional career, and this was only one of his limitations. But I knew that he was loyal. Why hadn't I been able to breathe and be reasonably happy in that atmosphere of friendship and love in which I had been placed, or, rather, in which I had placed myself? before the summer was a day or two older i had grown accustomed to being alone and enjoyed the liberty and when maud and the children returned in the autumn similarly it took me some days to get used to the restrictions imposed by a household i run the risk of shocking those who read this by declaring that if my family had been taken permanently out of my life i should not long have missed them but on the whole, in those years my marriage relation might be called a negative one. There were moments, as I have described, when I warmed to Maud, moments when I felt something akin to a violent antagonism, aroused by little mannerisms and tricks she had. The fact that we got along as well as we did was probably due to the orthodox teaching with which we had been inoculated to the effect that matrimony was a moral trial, a shaking-down process. But moral trials were ceasing to appeal to people, and more and more of them were refusing to be shaken down. We didn't cut the Gordian knot, but we managed to loosen it considerably. I have spoken of a new species of titans who inhabited the giant buildings in Wall Street, New York and fought among themselves for possession of the united states of america it is interesting to note that in these struggles a certain chivalry was observed among the combatants no matter how bitter the rivalry for instance it was deemed very bad form for one of the groups of combatants to take the public into their confidence cities were upset and stirred to the core by these conflicts and the citizens never knew who was doing the fighting, but imagined that some burning issue was at stake that concerned them. As a matter of fact, the issue always did concern them, but not in the way they supposed. Gradually, out of the chaotic melee in which these titans were engaged, had emerged one group more powerful than the rest, and more respectable, whose leader was the personality to whom I have before referred.
he and his group had managed to gain control of certain conservative fortresses in various cities such as the corn national bank and the ashuela telephone company to mention two of many adolf scherer was his ally and the boyne ironworks limited was soon to be merged by him into a greater corporation still leonard dickinson might be called his local governor-general we manned the parapets and kept our ears constantly to the ground to listen for the rumble of attacks but sometimes they burst upon us fiercely and suddenly without warning such was the assault on the ashuela which for years had exercised an apparently secure monopoly of the city's telephone service which had been able to ignore with complacency the shrillest protests of unreasonable subscribers through the pilot it was announced to the public that certain benevolent eastern capitalists were ready to rescue them from their thraldom if the city would grant them a franchise mr lawler the disinterestedness of whose newspaper could not be doubted fanned the flame day by day sent his reporters about the city gathering instances of the haughty neglect of the ashuela proclaiming its instruments antiquated compared with those used in more progressive cities as compared with the very latest inventions which the automatic company were ready to install provided they could get their franchise and the prices these too would fall under competition it was a clever campaign if the city would give them a franchise that automatic company so well named would provide automatic instruments each subscriber by means of a numerical disc could call up any other subscriber there would be no central operator no listening no tapping of wires the number of calls would be unlimited as a proof of the confidence of these eastern gentlemen in our city they were willing to spend five millions and present more than six hundred telephones free to the city departments what was fairer more generous than that there could be no doubt that popular enthusiasm was enlisted on behalf of the eastern capitalists who were made to appear in the light of crusaders ready to rescue a groaning people from the thrall of monopoly the excitement approached that of a presidential election and became the dominant topic of quick lunch counters and in-street cars cheap and efficient service down with the bastille of monopoly as counsel for the ishwela mr ogilvy sent for me and by certain secret conduits of information at my disposal i was not long in discovering the disquieting fact that a mr orthwine who was described as a gentleman with fat fingers and a plausible manner had been in town for a week and had been twice seen entering and emerging from monahan's saloon in short mr jason had already been seen nevertheless i went to see him myself to find him for the first time in my experience absolutely non-committal 
what's the ashwela willing to do he demanded i mentioned a sum and he shook his head i mentioned another and still he shook his head come round again he said i was compelled to report this alarming situation to ogilvy and dickinson and a few chosen members of a panicky board of directors it's that damned granis crowd said dickinson mentioning an aggressive gentleman who had migrated from chicago to wall street some five years before in a pink collar but what's to be done demanded ogilvy playing nervously with a gold pencil on the polished table he was one of those americans who in a commercial atmosphere become prematurely white and to-day his boyish smooth-shaven face was almost as devoid of colour as his hair even leonard dickinson showed anxiety which was unusual for him you've got to fix it hugh he said i did not see my way but i had long ago learned to assume the unruffled air and judicial manner of speaking that inspires the layman with almost superstitious confidence in the lawyer we'll find a way i said mr jason of course held the key to the situation and just how i was to get around him was problematical in the meantime there was the public to permit the other fellow to capture that was to be lacking in ordinary prudence if its votes counted for nothing its savings were desirable and it was fast getting into a state of outrage against monopoly the chivalry of finance did not permit of a revelation that mr granis and his buccaneers were behind the automatic but it was possible to direct and strengthen the backfire which the era and other conservative newspapers had already begun mr tallant for delicate reasons being persona non grata at the boyne club despite the fact that he had so many friends there we met for lunch in a private room at the new hotel and as we sipped our coffee and smoked our cigars we planned a series of editorials and articles that duly appeared they made a strong appeal to the loyalty of our citizens to stand by the home company and home capital that had taken generous risks to give them service at a time when the future of the telephone business was by no means assured they belittled the charges made by irresponsible and interested parties and finally pointed out not without effect that one logical consequence of having two telephone companies would be to compel subscribers in self-defence to install two telephones instead of one and where was the saving in that say parrot said judah b when we had finished our labours if you ever get sick of the law i'll give you a job on the heiress staff this is fine the way you put it it'll do a lot of good but how in hell are you going to handle judd for three days the inspiration was withheld and then as i was strolling down boyne street after lunch gazing into the store windows it came suddenly without warning like most inspirations worth anything it was very simple 
within half an hour i had reached monahan's saloon and found mr jason out of bed but still in his bedroom seated meditatively at the window that looked over the alley you know the crowd in new york behind this automatic company as well as i do jason i said why do you want to deal with them when we've always been straight with you when we're ready to meet them and go one better name your price suppose i do what then he replied this thing's gone pretty far under that damned new charter the franchise has got to be bid for hasn't it and the people want this company there'll be a howl from one end of this town to the other if we throw em down we'll look out for the public i assured him smiling well he said with one of his glances that were like flashes what you got up your sleeve suppose another telephone company steps in and bids a little higher for the franchise that relieves your aldermen of all responsibility doesn't it another telephone company he repeated i had already named it on my walk the interurban i said a dummy company said mr jason lively enough to bid something over a hundred thousand to the city for its franchise i replied judd jason with a queer look got up and went to a desk in a dark corner and after rummaging for a few moments in one of the pigeon-holes drew forth a glass cylinder which he held out as he approached me you get it mr parrot he said what is it i asked a bomb that he announced as he twisted the tube about in his long fingers holding it up to the light is the finest brand of cigars ever made in cuba a gentleman who had every reason to be grateful to me i won't say who he was gave me that once well the lord made me so's i can't appreciate any better tobacco than those five-cent bobtails monahan's got downstairs and i saved it i saved it for the man who would put something over me some day and you get it thank you i said unconsciously falling in with the semi-ceremony of his manner i do not flatter myself that the solution i have suggested did not also occur to you you'll smoke it he asked surely now here with me certainly i agreed a little puzzled as i broke the seal pulled out the cork and unwrapped the cigar from its gold foil he took a stick and rapped loudly on the floor after a brief interval footsteps were heard on the stairs and mike monahan white aproned and scarlet faced appeared at the door bobtails said mr jason laconically it's them i thought you'd be wanting said the saloon-keeper 
holding out a handful judd jason lighted one and began smoking reflectively i gazed about the mean room with its litter of newspapers and reports its shabby furniture and these seemed to have become incongruous out of keeping with the thoughtful figure in the chair facing me you had a college education mr parrott he remarked at length yes life's a queer thing now if i'd had a college education like you and you'd been thrown on the world like me maybe i'd be living up there on grant avenue and you'd be down here over the saloon maybe i said wondering uneasily whether he meant to imply a similarity in our gifts but his manner remained impassive speculative ever read carlyle's french revolution he asked suddenly why yes part of it a good while ago when you was in college yes i've got a little library here he said getting up and raising the shades and opening the glass doors of a bookcase which had escaped my attention he took down a volume of carlyle bound in half calf wouldn't think i cared for such things would you he demanded as he handed it to me well you never can tell what a man's real tastes are until you know him i observed to conceal my surprise that's so he agreed i like books some books if i'd had an education i'd have liked more of em known more about em now i can read this one over and over that feller carlyle was a genius he could look right into the bowels of the volcano and he was on to how men and women felt down there how they hate how they square themselves when they get a chance he had managed to bring before me vividly that terrible volcanic flow on versailles of the paris mob he put back the book and resumed his seat and i know how these people feel down here below the crust he went on waving his cigar out of the window as though to indicate the whole of that mean district they hate and their hate is molten hell i've been through it but you've got on top i suggested sure i've got on top do you know why it's because i hate it that's why a man's feelings if they're strong enough have a lot to do with what he becomes but he has to have ability too i objected sure he has to have ability but his feeling is the driving power if he feels strong enough he can make a little ability go a long way i was struck by the force of this remark i scarcely recognized judd jason the man as he revealed himself had become at once more sinister and more fascinating i can guess how some of those jacobins felt when they had the aristocrats in the dock they'd got on top the jacobins i mean it's human nature to want to get on top ain't it 
he looked at me and smiled but he did not seem to expect a reply well what you call society rich respectable society like you belong to would have made a bomb and a criminal out of me if i hadn't been too smart for em and it's a kind of satisfaction that i have em coming down here to monahan's for things they can't have without my leave i've got a half nelson on em i wouldn't live up on grant avenue if you gave me sharer's new house i was silent instead of starting my career in college i started in jail he went on apparently ignoring any effect he may have produced so subtly so dispassionately indeed was he delivering himself of these remarks that it was impossible to tell whether he meant their application to be personal to me or general to my associates i went to jail when i was fourteen because i wanted a knife to make kite sticks and i stole a razor from a barber i was bitter when they steered me into a lock-up in hickory street it was full of bugs and crooks and they put me in the same cell with an old-timer named red waters who was one of the sickest safe blowers around in those days red took a shine to me found out i had a headpiece and said their gang could use a clever boy if i'd go in with him i could make all kinds of money i guess i might have joined the gang if red hadn't kept talking about how the boss of his district named gallagher would come down and get him out and sure enough gallagher did come down and get him out i thought i'd rather be gallagher than red red had to serve time once in a while soon as i got out i went down to gallagher's saloon and there was red leaning over the bar here's a smart kid he says he and me were roommates over in hickory street he got to gassing me and telling me i'd better come along with him when gallagher came in what is it you'd like to be my son says he a politician i told him i was through going to jail gallagher had a laugh you could hear all over the place he took me on as a kind of handy boy around the establishment and by and by i began to run errands and find out things for him i was boss of that ward myself when i was twenty-six how do you like that cigar i praised it it ought to have been a good one he declared well i don't want to keep you here all afternoon telling you my life story i assured him i had been deeply interested pretty slick idea of yours that dummy company mr parrot go ahead and organize it he rose which was contrary to his custom on the departure of a visitor drop in again we'll talk about the books i walked slowly back reflecting on this conversation upon the motives impelling mr jason to become thus confidential nor was it the most comforting thought in the world that the artist in me had appealed to the artist in him
that he had hailed me as a brother but for the grace of god i might have been mr jason and he mr parrot undoubtedly that was what he had meant to imply and i was forced to admit that he had succeeded deliberately or not in making the respectable mr parrot just a trifle uncomfortable in the marble vestibule of the corn and national bank i ran into talent holding his brown straw hat in his hand and looking a little more moth-eaten than usual hello parrot he said how is that telephone business getting along is dickinson in i asked talent nodded we went through the cool bank with its shining brass and red mahogany its tiled floor its busy tellers attending to files of clients to the president's sanctum in the rear leonard dickinson very spruce and dignified in a black cutaway coat was dictating rapidly to a woman stenographer whom he dismissed when he saw us the door was shut i was just husking parrot about the telephone affair said mr tallant well have you found a way out leonard dickinson looked questioningly at me it's all right i answered i've seen jason all right they both ejaculated at once we win i said they stood gazing at me even dickinson who was rarely ruffled seemed excited do you mean to say you've fixed it he demanded i nodded they stared at me in amazement how the deuce did you manage it we organized the interurban telephone company and bid for the franchise that's all a dummy company cried talent why it's simple as a b c dickinson smiled he was tremendously relieved and showed it that's true about all great ideas talent he said they're simple only it takes a clever man to think of them and jason agrees talent demanded i nodded again we'll have to outbid the automatic people i haven't seen bitter yet about the about the fee that's all right said leonard dickinson quickly i take off my hat to you you've saved us you can ask any fee you like he added genially let's go over to to the ashuela and get some lunch he had been about to say the club but he remembered mr tallant's presence in time nothing worrying you hugh he added as we went out followed by the glances of his employees nothing i said end of section twenty one